0: to be This is small town music This is big town music He's ahead of his time, he can use it he prove it Well, tomorrow's just a song A song A song Hey everybody, welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis. And I'm Kyle Dotson. And Kyle, I just want to get right into it tonight. Okay. Are you good with that? Yeah. All right. I was going to ask you about your San Francisco trip and I'm not going to do that. Yeah, it was fine. Moving on. Did you you went to a wedding? <laughs> mm-hmm. You didn't get engaged to your girlfriend then, right? No. You didn't do anything crazy. No. All right. We went, we saw whales. We went I told whale you I watching. didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> you went whale watching. Yeah. Was that did you see whales? Yeah, we did. Are you guaranteed to see whales when you pay for a whale watching no. expedition? You just you just take your chances. You take your chance, yeah. All right. Are you good?
1: Yeah. That is it. <laughs>
0: All right, we have a great guest tonight. I'm super excited Uh, This gentleman is a co-founder of rhino records and if you've uh, been to my house and you've looked in my record collection you're gonna see tons and tons of uh, Titles released on rhino records. I have I have all the monkey stuff. I have the Ramones stuff I have some Frankie Valley stuff What else do I have Todd Rundgren stuff Mm -hmm. from a long time ago when they released the Todd Rundgren (laughs) stuff and um and uh, just all kinds of stuff. And, and this guy is here because he's got. This is your second book. Second book. Second book. This is uh, that voice is Harold Bronson. How you doing, Harold? Great. So your first book was about you founding Rhino Records,
1: right? The uh, Rhino Records story was uh, the uh, very unusual story about record fans who went to. Uh, formed a business, originally the store and then the label, not necessarily doing it because we thought we were going to get rich, but because we thought, hey, we like this stuff and we don't have to get real jobs. And then kind of learning as we were going, um, it just it turned into a really great business where towards the end we were, our sales were over a hundred million dollars. That's crazy. And, um, but it, it was, um, you know, for the right reasons and we were very, uh, humanitarian company mm-hmm. who really cared about our employees, but most of all, we cared about the music. So whether it relates to the first book or the second book, the most important thing is the music.
0: And you're, that never goes away either. When you're a music fan, you're a music fan for life.
1: Well, I hope so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what are some of the, let me ask you what, what are? do you still go to shows?
1: You know, very rarely, but having said that, every once in a while, yes. And do people recognize you when you're out at a show? Rarely.
0: <laughs> what um, Do you have any bucket list uh, artists that you've never, like, that you've ne- like? I've never seen Elton John, and it's killing me. How could I have not seen Elton John yet?
1: Well, I hope there's a remedy for that. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the issues, as we know, is that as people in general get mm-hmm. older, or as performers get older, yeah. you know, their chops aren't quite as good. And you kind of have to make that determination. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the surprises being that you brought this up in the, uh, in the new book, I have a chapter on the zombies who are among my favorite bands. And in October, 2015 at the Saban theater here, um, I saw them and four fifths of the original band did the Odyssey and Oracle album for the second set. And even though these guys were roughly around 70 years old and, you know, their voices weren't as supple as they were in their 20s, sure. but it was a great show. Now, and uh, so that's was a, that's one of my real highlights.
0: Now, this is so interesting that you just brought this up and I'm going to tell you why. I didn't know that you were going to we we're going to jump into this already, but it just happened. And this is cool. I've been hearing about this Odyssey and Oracle album f- for a long time. People always post about it. Um, and I had never heard the album, never heard it. The only song I knew was time of the season. So I bought this album last week and I cannot believe how great this album is. Now I'm trying to get Colin and Rod on the show. I'm going to go see them perform this uh, album. And, uh, and Harold, he's saying it's great. And that's cool. You, you can say, you can talk over me, no, but, no, no, um, but like uh, yeah. I'm friends with, uh, do you know David Wilde? Rolling Stone magazine. Um, you know, I've
1: uh, met him, um, but I,
0: I think maybe only just once. So I was just talking to him last week. I go, you know what album I just discovered? This Odyssey and Oracle. And he's like, yeah, it's one of the best albums of all time. Then I was at uh, a place called CD Trader. And uh, I was talking about it to this guy at the counter. I go, I just discovered this album. And, and him, the two guys that worked there could not believe it. They were just like, yeah, it's fantastic.
1: at the uh, concert, I was surprised at how many younger people there. A lot of people in their mm-hmm. 30s and even a, some in their 20s. But um, uh, when uh, uh, Rhino Films did the Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas mm-hmm. movie, of which there's a really great chapter in the Rhino Records story on that. But there was a, a party when Hunter S. Thompson was in town and I was talking to Johnny Depp and I was really surprised that he said that, not only does he love this album, but like the Zombies are one of his favorite groups and he's a you know, a younger guy sure. who didn't experience them when they originally were around. And also um, Paul Weller from the jam sure. and also from his solo career um, he loves this album too. That's among his favorite albums. It's,
0: yeah, it's like when that album came out, I would have been four years old. I mean, so it's been, it's been out for my entire life. That's the thing about music. It's, it never goes away. You can always discover it. And I'm so happy that I found this album. And I've been telling all my friends about it now. I'm like, have you ever heard this? And they're like, no. And then I'm like, I'm buying it for them. I'm getting it for them.
1: Well, that's one of the things in the um, the new book called my British invasion.
0: My British invasion. I'm holding a, I'm holding an uncorrected proof in my hand.
1: Right. So, so in addition to telling the story of a number of the artists, and we're going to probably you know mention them as uh, throughout the evening. Absolutely. But, but I, aside from you know telling the story, and I think telling it really well um, with a lot of obscure facts, but more importantly, it's to turn people on to the music. In some cases, maybe they're familiar with some of the hits, but in other cases. They probably aren't, and the idea is hopefully the book will inspire them to go, Oh, look, let me check this track out, or let me check that track out, because um, music has such a great capacity to enrich somebody's life, and this is without adding extra calories or anything (laughs) like that. And, um, And again, like you've discovered with Odyssey and Oracle, something that's really great is, in a sense, timeless, so, I mean, there's a lot of great music out there waiting for people just to discover it.
0: And I love in the back of the book how you have a playlist that you made up for um, for all these bands. Most of the bands that are in the book, you have a playlist. Yes. And uh, that's that alone is is great uh, reason to pick up this book because, you know, you'll read through this playlist and you'll go, oh, I know this song and I know that song and I like this song. And then there's a list of all these other songs that you'll probably go, huh, I don't know if I know those. And then... Go to iTunes, buy them, check them out. But um, let's hear uh, let's hear a song from Odyssey and Oracle that I have uh, in the queue. It's the song that opens the album. This is Care of Cell Forty Four. this album so much that i went out and then i bought a, uh they have a, there's a mono version on cd also and i picked that up too
1: you know it's a great track um i love the baseline on yes that. but the other thing is um the subject matter you know when you think about it you, you the lyrics what is it oh, care of cell 44 what mm-hmm. does that mean oh, she's writing to him from prison
0: and it's so unique you know this is so funny i was uh my uh my 16 year old daughter, like she loves the kinks. We have a lot, we have some music that we like and I know what I can play in the car that she'll enjoy. And then sometimes she doesn't enjoy what I'm playing. But on the way to school today, I said, Hey, I'm going to play this album. And I played Odyssey and Oracle today. This is not a lie today. The first song comes on and like, you know, two lines in, she turns to me, she goes, is this about someone in prison? Mm. And I was like, uh, cause I had really not listened. I haven't listened, been listening to it for that long. So I, and then the next line,
1: I'm like, oh, yeah, it is. I'm like, wow. Yeah, what a, just a totally original song. Now, I, I should point out that we heard a little bit of the Mellotron there. That was actually John Lennon's Mellotron that uh, when the Beatles had recorded Sgt. Pepper mm-hmm. and then the Zombies came in a few weeks later, but Lennon had left his Mellotron in the studio and it was there, so, so they gotta, used it. get to
0: use it. Yeah. Is that how it works? If you're renting the studio, you can use whatever anyone has left...
1: Um, well, I don't think he put any restrictions on it. <laughs> um,
0: so right. Oh, I forgot. Rhino, the, the knack you guys, you, the Rhino does such a great job with these uh, reissues. Cause I always say, here's the things that I like in, in reissues. Obviously they remaster the sound. I like when the, um, I like when the original album elements are there. I like when they add in the lyrics and then I like, you know, a bunch of new stuff, an essay, some uh, unseen photos, and Rhino Records always did that so great. I, I love that. So I'm going to thank you for filling my uh, my record collection with CDs that I bought again and again, and then again when Rhino would get a hold of them. What Do you have anything to do with Rhino Records anymore? No. Not at all?
1: No. But I, I wanted to say that... Are you um, okay with that? Yeah. All right. But what I wanted to say was... Um, so around the time we started to reissue mm-hmm. this music, a lot of times it wasn't available, like there wasn't a Spencer Davis group best of available Mm -hmm. when we put ours out. Uh, But in other cases, record companies, the kind of uh, operating philosophy is, oh, we own this stuff, let's squeeze out a few more, um, you know, dollars of profit out of it, but let's not spend any money on it, right? So when we came along, it was kind of like, hey, this was important to us growing up, so let's, make it, let's try to make it sound good. Let's track down rare photos. Let's have informative liner notes. And uh, fortunately, there were a lot of people who felt the same way that we did. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so we didn't really have hit records. But through the years, we sold you know, more and more of this product as um, people valued the music. Yeah.
0: And because, like you said, a lot of it you couldn't get anywhere. Right. I have a I have a three CD set a Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons three CD yes. set that that to me that is still the best uh, collection that's been released the the for me comprehensive I love it I, and I, I, and subsequent ones have come out but they're not as good as this one so I well, I, well my partner on
1: this one my partner in Rhino Richard Foose mm-hmm. he grew up in um, the Pittsburgh area and they were really big or in a sense kind of bigger on the East Coast yeah. because of coming out of the, uh, you know, the doo-wop sound. So he had a lot to do with um, compiling that. But what's interesting is that usually when we licensed um, the rights, we would get it from the original record company or the subsequent record company that bought up the rights. In a few rare cases, like with the Turtles and Four Seasons, because they got screwed out of their royalties <laughs> because of lawsuits as a settlement, they ended up getting the rights to the masters. So we made that licensing deal directly with the Four Seasons. And Richard and I met Frankie Valley, who was a really nice guy. He was playing at the, uh, the Four Seasons with the uh, Universal Amphitheater. So he really appreciated the package that we put out way back when as well.
0: well that's fantastic that you guys, uh, I love that you guys, you had a passion for something and then you the love of it just turned it into your career. Yes. That's what everyone should strive to do no matter what their passion is, whether it's fixing cars or, I don't know, I don't, I don't know being a lumberjack. What else, Kyle? Hosting a podcast. Hosting a podcast, sure. Why not, Kyle? Thank you. You get a raise after this.
1: Okay. So, but, so what's interesting is um, with the um, My British Invasion mm-hmm. book, it actually, that's kind of the real root, meaning like, no Beatles, no British Invasion, perhaps no Rhino Records. I love that. I love
0: the thing about the British British Invasion that I love so much is that th- those bands uh, were taking from they they were worshiping the the blues bands from from the states, and so that music goes over there, and then the British Invasion comes over here, and that influences. Bands like Aerosmith and all those type of bands, so it just keeps like ping ponging back and forth across the ocean. Yes, and I, I love it. Yes. Who do you have like a do you have like a definitive British Invasion band that you love? Is it the Zombies?
1: Well, I think you know the the Beatles. Well, of course. Right, but uh, I mean the ones for the most part that I wrote about mm-hmm. in the book. But the Zombies are high up there. Of course, the Kinks. You mentioned the Kinks earlier. The Kinks are my favorite. Um, by the way, uh, last week Ray was knighted. He's now. Mm-hmm sir ray davis
0: uh someone i'm trying to think what the tweet was someone tweeted like uh it was to the tune of all day and all the night but it was like sir ray and now
1: he's in night or something stupid but um anyway i have a chapter on the kinks only a little bit deals with the history but um so the rca period masters they did a uh, five albums uh uh, probably the track that most people know is Everybody's in Showbiz. Mm-hmm. And um, we license those directly from the Kinks. So a lot of that chapter is dealing with Ray, who is difficult. <laughs> and So so there's little threads and little uh, sub-themes throughout this, as much as it's the story of a lot of these prominent bands. But one of the things are... Um, uh, Suppose you actually meet your heroes or, in some cases, have to do business with them. You know, what is that like? And what is that like if it's not easy or if it's not difficult? I mean, on one hand, you know, these people whose music you really love, but then you have a responsibility to your company. And a lot of times what they want might not be what's best for the music. (laughs) So, So there's that aspect, which is in a few chapters as well.
0: Who was uh, who was someone that was great to work with? Just someone that came well, in and was even better than you expected them to be.
1: Well, I think the best experience that I ever had. Again, this is going back to the the first book, the Rhino Record mm-hmm. story. But Flo and Eddie, or um, Howard Kalen and Mark Volman, you know, better known as the right. two singers in the Turtles. But those guys were great to work with. A lot of fun. Um, Howard um, is was. Smart, he was his class valedictorian. You don't think about a rock and roll singer as being the class valedictorian, no, no,
0: you usually do not.
1: But I mean, you know, just really funny. But also, aside from everything else, the root of all that is that they were record fans.
0: It's so funny, like the the Turtles are are not a British invasion band, but for some reason, they feel like they are. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Well, it's interesting about that, and they. The chapter in the Rhino record story is like the really definitive chapter and talks a lot about everything, but including they were the first rock band to play the White House, which is a story in itself. But what I want to get back to is that originally people, a lot of people, when they went on tour, when uh, "It Ain't Me, Babe, their first single was a hit, People thought they were English. Because, and in fact, it was kind of calculated. Their manager said, because originally they were called the Crossfires. <laughs> and the manager said, no, no, I got this great name for you, the Turtles. People think you're British because Beatles, V-E-A-T-L-E-S, mm-hmm. Turtles, T-L-E-S. right? And there's actually, um, not through anything that they did, but um, in some of those 1965 concert posters, it says, direct from Liverpool. Ah, now Sneaky. Now, funny prior to that when they were the crossfires and they were playing in redondo beach and you know the whole you know english thing was happening they used to go after gigs they would go like to the carolina pines bowling alley the coffee shop and you know just to kind of talk about the gig and stuff but they uh concocted, or assumed, I should say, English accents. <laughs> but the thing is, they figured, well, everybody knows who the more prominent bands are. They can't be the Beatles, so they can't be the Dave Clark Five or the Rolling Stones. So the, the waitress would say, oh, hey, are you on a rock and They would say, oh, we would like a, a white tea, please, and put the bicky on the side, you know, doing the English accent. So they told them they were Jerry and the Pacemakers because they figured nobody... <laughs> no one knows what, what they look, they look like. like. Yeah, so That's it's <laughs> kind of like that was the part of the fun of you know, being music fans, record fans that ultimately translated into being one of America's top rock bands. A lot of these bands, too,
0: it's uh, a lot of them went with the, you know, the Hollies, the Kings, the Beatles, the Trogs, the Zombies, um, the Yardbirds. I wonder why it was all like the something back then. It was always like that.
1: Well, see, originally um, it was the solo singers. It was, it was like Cliff Richards. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, if there'd be a backing band, it would be Cliff Richard and the Shadows, and there were a number of artists like that, like Jerry and the Pacemakers, Pacemakers. or Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. Um, but you know, there were also so orig- So to actually be a self-contained instrumental and vocal group like the Beatles, you know, that was relatively new. It was you know, it wasn't it? Was against the grain of you know the Cliff Richards right. and. Tommy Steele, you know, those people. Yeah.
0: Let me, uh, well this is a great, first of all, again, it's uh, the book is called My British Invasion and it's a fantastic book. Uh, You can pre-order it right now. I tweeted today the link where you can pre-order it on Amazon. And um, do you have a website? Harold, do you have your own website? Well, uh,
1: no I don't. What what I did was um, um, when the first book came out I have a, uh, a Facebook page which is just the rhino record story so rather than coming up with another you know page of something i'm just going to be you're just going to use like, it use, use that, that for yeah. this book also yeah
0: okay well go like uh, go like harold on the uh rhino records facebook page
1: well it'd be the rhino record story
0: the rhino record story okay i want to get into uh i want to talk about in this book i love this because you talk about hermans hermits and i'm going to read this and kyle knows i'm a horrible uh live reader uh next to the Beatles, I bought more 45s by Herman's Hermits than of any other artist. I like their first record, I'm Into Something Good, and their second, the more vibrant, Can't You Hear Me... See? See? I'm terrible. Can't You Hear My Heartbeat even better. So let's play a little bit of Can't You Hear My Heartbeat. Every time I see you looking in my fun. Such a great song. Yeah. Even today. Yeah. Even today. Yeah. Uh, is Peter noon? Is he still out there
1: doing, uh, I think he still performs a little bit. doesn't he? Oh yes. Uh, I mean, I've seen him, well, I guess the last time I saw him was in, um, uh, 2014 at the Orange County Fair. He's great. I mean, his voice still sounds great. He's a real showman. It's fun. I mean, his songs are fun and he's fun. He's still a handsome fella. Yeah. 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 So when I first, um, Interviewed him when he came to Los Angeles as part of this um, um, British invasion package this was in um, 1973 I mean he was great to meet and he was like really funny Mm -hmm. and had great stories but the revelation was when Herman's hermits started out to some extent they were a comedic group so they would do these Comedy bits to set up the songs I had no idea well, neither did I. And, and then when they became really big and girls were screaming at them, they couldn't do any of that stuff. So, you know, when he was telling, was like I said, it was a revelation because the Hermans Hermits that America experienced wasn't what the band were originally all about. There was this other side of them that they couldn't express. Did he
0: miss doing the comedy? Or, or I guess if girls are screaming, then you're fine.
1: I don't think he missed it, but obviously... Um, when he started to play in the seventies and, um, obviously there weren't the screaming crowds. He was able to, you know, <laughs> do the setups I and mean, it wasn't quite like when, you know, the original, you know, the amateur comedy stuff. Right. Um, but it was still, uh, yeah. So he it, does that. It's an interesting
0: name for a band too, because I would assume at first you would, you would think Peter noon
1: was named Herman. Well, here's the story on that. Um, um, they were big on Buddy Holly, and they were um, rehearsing for the evening. They were at a pub, and the publican um, he was wondering like, why Peter wore these black rimmed glasses Be- because he wore them because of like you know Buddy Holly right right, and then um, when Peter told him, he started laughing. He goes, "Oh, you look more like Herman." He meant. Sherman from the Bullwinkle cartoon show, <laughs> so um, so it, it was um, um, A fluke, yeah. So kind of, be, and then then the other guys in the band would make fun of him, hey, Herman Herman. So they became Herman and the Hermits because of that. And one of the the uh, well, originally it was Herman and the Hermits. Okay. And one of the things they did was they got these potato sacks and outfitted them to look like you know hermit like costumes. But they only wore them, like, I think, once. And then, then that evolved into Herman's Hermans.
0: It's so funny, because I always used to think of them, without knowing this backstory of them doing these comedy bits, uh, they always seem like more of, a, of a, a funny or fun band, or not, I don't want to say not serious, but um, I don't know, they just didn't seem like they had, they, they do, though, when I hear the music now, but they didn't seem like they had the weight of some of these other bands for some reason. In my that's my opinion.
1: Well that's true, but the way he explained it is that um you know, by giving the extra element of the show um they would get booked. But uh if they, you know, prior to all that, well, if they just sounded like the records, then they could hire a DJ which would be much cheaper. And uh, so that was kind of the reason back then. I mean, he uh they were uh uh, based originally in the manchester area and that's you know kind of what people liked and you know it's it's, it's a little bit different when you think about um the beatles in hamburg They they would always <laughs> say that you know the crowd would be like mock show which means you know make show or make a show not just sort of play but actually do something uh, yeah okay. exactly
0: yeah i don't like when i go see a band like um and they just they just play the music it's got to be it's got to be more, or like you said, you can just listen to that, you can just listen to the records at home.
1: Yeah, well, you know, one example for me, um, I think it was maybe 1971, but I saw Van Morrison at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, and he didn't say one word to the audience, so as much as I was (laughs) into his music, I was just really put off, and on rare occasion where There is somebody on stage who doesn't, you know, try to engage the audience or be civil or anything. It just uh, really turns me, you know, the wrong way.
0: Now, the opposite of that is when I go to see Alice Cooper, Alice Cooper doesn't talk to the audience, really. But then there's a million things going on around (laughs) on that stage. So it uh, it makes Um, up for it in showmanship.
1: Yeah, I love Alice Cooper. Alice is great. Seen him numerous times. He's still uh, good early on. Yeah, Yeah,
0: I've I've seen him in the past five years. He's still amazing. Sounds great. Still still does all the stuff. Cuts his head off. Hmm. Chases a nurse around. You know all that stuff. Sticks uh, kills babies.
1: (laughs) Um, What made you want to write this book? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, It was sort of an outgrowth or after the. the Rhino record story. And I didn't think about it really beforehand, but then as I was thinking about it, I had engaged with all of these significant people from that period. In some cases, maybe as a music journalist when I used to write for Rolling Stone or Rock Magazine or the LA Times. Um, And then in other cases, uh, as I mentioned before, like with the Kinks at Rhino, in that capacity and I just love the music so much and um, uh, it's not called the British Invasion because I don't cover everybody so for instance there's no chapters on the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or the Who but there's numerous books on them so what I thought that I would do is on the other chapters um, I attempted to present um, within a chapter length the most complete story with the most, you know, insight and the most accuracy compared to maybe what other people might have done before in, you know, articles in Mojo magazine or, or, or other things. And, uh, yeah, as soon
0: as I picked it up, the first thing, the first thing I noticed was, oh, no Beatles, no who, no Stones, but then, oh, cause you don't, you don't need that. You don't, we don't need to hear anything else about the Beatles or the, who or the stones? I mean, there's countless, I own countless books about those bands. Yes. So I like that you're shining the spotlight on, you know, a band like the Trogs. Yes. So let's hear Kyle. Let's just hear, I've never, I never heard this song in my life. This Trogs song, it's called with a girl like you. For me when I would see the name The Trogs, I think, of course, Wild Thing. But I also think uh, Wild Thing. There's been so many uninspired covers of Wild Thing and like I've heard Wild Wild Thing like I don't I don't have to ever have to hear Wild Thing again. So when I was going through some of their other songs that were on your playlist, they were fantastic. So I'm a convert now because again I was just thinking oh the Trogs with that wild thing like this song
1: we just played I love that song so fantastic it was a number one in England so they were always much bigger there but um, to kind of put things in perspective uh, even though they were big in England uh, you know years later people kind of like denigrated them because they were so simple but I think for people who aren't familiar with them when you think about the Ramones are simple sure Black Sabbath is simple. Um, And in fact, one of the things I was surprised at um, when I was at UCLA uh, decades ago and I interviewed Ozzy Osbourne and he cited two records that really influenced him and kind of that hard sound. And he said, The Kinks Really Got Me and The Trogs, Wild Thing. Um, There was one period... um, I think it might've been 15 or 16 months in uh, England where they had more hits than the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Herman's Hermits, all these other artists in the U S they only had uh, two big hits.
0: I love, I love hearing stats like that, that that this band that you might not know had more hits uh, at a a time than the Beatles in England. It's crazy. Yeah. They were big. Um, are they one of your favorites, the trogs?
1: Oh, yeah. What's, the tro- what's a trog? What's that mean? Is well, it it's just short a- from troglodyte, which ah, is a cave dweller. All right. Now, um, they were very rarely, like almost never, came to the West Coast, and this was you know, years later. But in 1980, they came and they played the whiskey, but they also played the Rhino Record Store. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> people couldn't believe how good they were. Again, it's simple, but they were true to their self and true to their sound.
0: I love the Ramones, and like, I have many friends that would go like, oh, the Ramones, everything sounds the same, and I get so mad. I want to punch them right in the face. I'm like, you're not listening.
1: Uh, I love true. the Ramones. That's true, wow. How it,
0: come? How come, uh, I'm, I'm jumping around here. Why did Rhino Records, uh, were you there when they did the Ramones releases? Were you still with Rhino then?
1: Um, yes, um, I didn't really have anything to do with them. But, uh, Why did you guys
0: stop it, Too Tough to Die? Animal, well, I, wasn't, I, animal,
1: wasn't, I wasn't involved in that.
0: You don't have anything to do with it. No. i, no. I got to make but, a call.
1: But anyway, I mean, we could talk a lot about the Ramones. <laughs> we won't. And, We're going to talk and no, about no, no, my I'm British saying, invasion. At one point, I wanted to do a movie on them. But more specifically, what people don't realize is that after they broke up, they became much, much bigger. Like, these days, they make so much more money. Or the Ramones catalog, I should right. say. makes make so much more money. But um, I believe that when those original... Uh, First few albums came out. I think they only sold about 30,000 each
0: You mean when they came out on vinyl originally originally? Yeah, Yeah,
1: I know in the 70s. Yeah,
0: yeah, I never got to see the Ramones either
1: Uh, Well, I'm fortunate. I, I saw them twice you said unfortunately no no fortunately oh, said yeah. unfortunately no no i used to like i used to, li- I used to <laughs> like them
0: yeah and queen with freddie mercury never got to see queen
1: and i saw them uh i think three times
0: oh, i'm gonna have to jump in your head and get these memories right well now, no you I
1: don't have, have, to have to do that you just have to read the book <laughs> queen is queen queen's not in this book Uh not that one no. <laughs>
0: in the first book
1: no actually no no there's plenty of other people <laughs> but not <laughs> Queen. Not <laughs> okay okay here's my queen anecdote okay um I think it was the first time they played L.A. Um, 1973 at Santa Monica Civic. I saw it. It was a great show. Um, I was working behind the counter at the record store. Um, the next few days, three people came in the store so said that I, they thought I looked like Freddie Mercury. Did you have a mustache back then? No, he didn't back then. He didn't either? I think it was because... Did you the, wear
0: spandex uh, tights? Did you
1: wear some type um, of a um, <laughs> black and white print not, not, tights? Not, not to work, not to work. <laughs>
0: I don't see a Freddie no, no, well,
1: Mercury resemblance with you at all. Well, you don't have, those, you don't have the photos in the book. But no, the, um, it was like the hair. But the other thing I couldn't quite figure out is because he has those, pardon the expression, protruding teeth. Yes. And of course, I didn't and don't. No. And it was kind of was like, oh, I don't have that kind of teeth. But those three people. Were who, you insulted by that compliment? No. No. <laughs> just amused.
0: Were these uh, ladies or men that said this?
1: Um, well, I think it was probably both. It was about three, maybe four people the the week following the concert
0: ladies. Maybe you turn that into something. Maybe you work that a little bit.
1: Well, because he wouldn't. (laughs) That's right. (laughs)
0: Um, the Dave Clark five, I saw a great documentary on them a few years back. I had no idea that, uh, in, in, in Great Britain that was like uh, the, the magazines would play them and the Beatles off of each other. Like they were their rivals, Dave Clark Five versus the Beatles. Yes. Well, I had no idea about this. And uh, so then I tried to find some Dave Clark Five music. It's literally, there's nothing. It's not out there.
1: Well, I talk a, a lot about that in the book and I think it's really unfortunate for the original fans or other people who might be curious. Um, you know, Dave, I would say his miss calculation and in not going into it at this point, although it's covered in the book, but more specifically, um, he did make his uh, music available as paid downloads. So you can actually pay the, what, the 99 cents or the $1.29 or whatever he's charging. But yeah, I just think he really um, was short-sighted and let his catalog down.
0: Yeah there's a, I have a 2 CD collection that I found used but it was not cheap. I think Hollywood Records released it.
1: Yeah, we were kind of uh advised them, shall we say again I go into that in the chapter, mm-hmm. but yeah, we helped them that to be a better package than it would have if we It's a great involved.
0: package actually. But but now it's I don't think I think it's out of print now. I don't think you can find well, it. Oh, it's
1: been out of print for a long time. And because, why why Because well, well, you're getting into psychology here and you know a lot of times it's how do you anticipate what somebody's thinking. But I think, um, so Dave, before the rock band stuff, he thought he would be like um, a film actor and mm-hmm. he did a lot of um, extra work. I think he was maybe in 40 or 50 British films and he did a little stunt work and he was into, um, um, I don't know if it was jiu-jitsu or karate or something like that. But, so in thinking about, stunt people have to be Very precise and in control and I think that that's part of his psychology and at a certain point um, he wanted the music off the market without having plans of what to do next and I think it kind of ties in with that control thing so
0: I love how you are like tiptoeing around uh, this without just saying it's kind of a nut job Oh, you know Dave. <laughs> and um and and he's had some some work done on the face that's
1: um we can talk about that uh, later. <laughs> well,
0: you're not saying anything. I'm just I'm just saying I'm just talking out of school. I'm not here to get you in trouble.
1: No. Well, I mean, I even so the the nice thing is that I uh I faxed him way back when, of when I was...
0: Well, it had to be way back when, because you said faxed.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, about that I was leaving Rhino, because I was the guy who was dealing with him. Right. And um, I was really surprised that he called me, I think, on my last day, and to tell me that I was a gentleman, and to to wish me good luck, and I just thought, that's really nice, because it wasn't necessarily easy dealing with him. Well, I would say, Dave,
0: Mr. Clark, please put that music out. It, it shouldn't be that hard, difficult to, I mean, he probably owns everything. Yes. And it, I don't think it would be that, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be that difficult to get it up on iTunes or wherever. No, no. Like I said, he does, it's on, it's
1: on iTunes.
0: It is on, you're yeah. saying it, it is on yeah, iTunes. Yeah. yeah. It's on
1: iTunes. You know, people can buy the, the tracks on iTunes. Okay. Okay. See, I still have, see, Dave, I gave you a plug.
0: I still love the, I love holding, I still love physical music. Well, I love holding a me CD. Too.
1: Me too. I don't. And then sometimes, you know, when you change computers, the, the new stuff can't come over and but you have to figure out how to like make it available. I have
0: a hard copy right here. It's called a compact disc. Yes. Well, I do that too. Yeah. My, my
1: cause my daughters are all Spotify.
0: Mm. They're like, I have everything I have here. I'm like, you don't really have it. Right. That's right. <laughs> I have it. You that's, don't have it. That's right. I've yeah. got it. Let's hear, uh, the song, the Dave Clark five song I picked was, uh, uh, can't you see that she's mine? I I I want you to give me, I want you to school me right now on the, uh, the Spencer Davis group. Tell me about the Spencer Davis group. The only thing I knew about them is that I knew that Steve Winwood was in the band.
1: Well, that's I think all you need to know. <laughs> no, um again they were really big in England. They only had um two hits in the US. Um some people might know uh Give Me Some Love, Give Me Some lovin'. Sure. and you know Keep On Running and um but there's like uh you know a song like Somebody Help Me like nobody in the US or few people know what that is, but that was a big hit as well in England. So um uh, what happened was um, Spencer's a really smart guy. He was a German major, and one year he actually um, studied uh, in Germany. And but he was a good performer. But he uh, he was influenced by uh, a lot of the blues guys, Big Bill Brunzi, for instance, but uh, and a lot of the folk singers, Joan Baez. But more specifically, when you hear you know and think about the Rolling Stones and other people like R and B and blues guys, uh, Spencer. A typically he was into country blues, so I think there's in their music you hear a bit of the country blues. But I mean, let's face it, uh, Stevie Winwood was a phenomenon, and he sounded just like Ray Charles, and uh, that had a lot to do with the success. But if it was only him, you know, it wouldn't have happened. I mean, it was a good band; they played together really well. And um, they made some great records. And
0: Steve Winwood was really young when he was in this band, correct?
1: I think um, I think he was fifteen. And uh, the way Spencer puts it is, his brother Muff Winwood, who um, was a pretty good guitarist, but kind of a, just an adequate bass player. But so, but Muff had to be in the band because he could drive Stevie. you know, to the gigs. So that's how Muff got in the band. I
0: I know the name Muff Winwood because he produced either the first or the second Dire Straits album.
1: Well, so what happened was um, the English label for the Spencer Davis group was Island Records, at a certain point, Island Records. And um, Chris Blackwell, who originally signed the group and produced them, um, after the Spencer Davis group broke up, he hired Muff, as an A&R person. Huh. So even prior to Dire Straits, like for instance, he signed Sparks. Oh, cool. Well, wow. So he was a really good a and guy. That's amazing. And years later, um, Spencer became like, worked for Island Records outside of, uh, you know, based out of Los Angeles. And his real name was Muff? No. What's his real name? That's got to be a nickname.
0: That sounds, oh, yeah. like, that sounds like Kitty Cat.
1: Um, well, it was a, was <laughs> a nickname. M- I Mervin?
0: Mervin. Yeah. Oh, I like muff better than Mervin. Well, I think he did too. <laughs> yeah. I Mervin's rough. They couldn't even go Marvin. His parents had to go Mervin.
1: Yeah. It's it's
0: M E R V Y N. Nah, that's I got red flags all over that. His parents didn't like him even in an, <laughs> or even at the earliest of ages. Uh, I asked, uh, I actually emailed you and, and asked Harold to pick a Spencer Davis song. Cause I was going to play, I'm a man. And I, uh, I had no idea that uh, the Chicago song is actually a cover of Spencer Davis. That's a great song, but you picked Keep On Running. So let's hear Keep On Running by the Spencer Davis
1: group. Keep on running
0: attempt to read again. Very dim. Not good at reading out loud. Are you good at reading out loud? Like, do you ever do like a stage reading of your books?
1: Um, rarely, but I think I'm pretty good. Okay. Bra- I mean, I mean, bragging I did, I a little mean bit. no, I mean, I, I did write it.
0: You did write it. So these are the words that would be coming out of your mouth. Uh, okay. This is on the Hollies. This is the beginning of the, of the, uh, of the chapter on the Hollies. The story of the Hollies is a story of friendship. It started when five-year-old Harold, Hey, look at that. Harold Allen Clark hereafter Herein after Alan enrolled in Ord's sale. Oh, I can't even say that word. Ord's cell primary school in Manchester, England. Alan Clark says, the teacher asked, who would like this young man to sit next to him? Graham Nash raised his hand. There was an empty chair ne- seat next to him. We got on naturally from then on. We started singing in school and during the assemblies, we stood out. We sang the Lord is my shepherd in harmony. That's a pretty great story. I mean, well, cause I remember when school and then a new kid would come in and be like, who wants to sit next to Kyle? And he'd be like, no way. And so that seems like it, that seems like a gift from, from the gods. You put these P pe- these guys from that early age, click.
1: They, well, they were English, so they were more civil. <laughs> well, probably. But, but anyway, the, um, yeah, it was really this friendship of those two guys and goes into the story. But the, um, the nowment of that is when Graham left to form Crosby, Stills and Nash. Wait, wait, wait. Who's that Graham? I don't know if I know that band. Um, what if I really didn't? It, <laughs> what if
0: I didn't know what he was talking about?
1: But, but anyway, the point I want to make is that um, there's actually you know, when I mentioned earlier about little subtexts and little threads. You know, one of them is you know friendship, how it enters into this, and um, when you think about a lot of even today males have difficulty in expressing themselves then you go back um you know 30 years to england where they're more reserved right (laughs) so alan uh told me he goes oh yeah i was on the street and some guy came up to me and said hey do you know graham has a new band in the states meaning that You know, he had to hear it from a stranger that this, you know, friend of his was five years old, you know, couldn't even, you know, talk to him about it. I mean, you hear the stuff. I mean, that's I've heard stories like that all the time. Like when um, Roy Wood left um, the Electric Light Orchestra in England to form Wizard. You know, he didn't tell the other guys. It was like the manager said, oh, hey, Roy's leaving. And he took these two other guys. It's like, huh? I mean, again, you know, yeah. friends for a long time, and they couldn't even talk to each other. And then
0: after that, nothing happened with the Electric Light Orchestra. They just, they just, uh, they just went away.
1: <laughs> yeah, well,
0: I was, uh, and Roy's going to get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
1: Well, I saw that with the
0: Electric Light Orchestra. It's I think very it's great. You think it's great? Yeah. I always wonder. I don't know how. The, I don't know how that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing works because sometimes when I think someone should be inducted,
1: they're not, and then. Well, I, mean, I know I know how it works, but i 'll just give you like a little bit thumbnail it for me uh, Well, I think for about four or five years, I was on the nominating committee. But what people don 't understand is and I think the the, the criteria has loosened considerably. Mm-hmm. And, But it was always a matter of an influence. So, no matter how good somebody was or how, you know, the records that they made, how great, well, if they, you know, if other people weren't influenced by them, then they couldn't get in. Like the Turtles made great records and they were a great band musically. And oh, but, you know, because their influence couldn't be determined, well, they wouldn't be. So, I think the Turtles should be in. I think the Monkeys should be in. Yes, definitely. Um, Dick Dale, you know, who, the king of the surf guitar, who basically, um, created that sound and that music, you know, he, sh- he should be in. There's a lot of people I think should be in.
0: Yeah, when you have your own sound, like as soon as, soon as you hear uh, Dick Dale play, you know immediately, you go, oh, I bet that's Dick Dale. I bet right. that's Dick Dale. Uh, the one that always sticks in my craw, Kyle, do you know who this is? Yeah. Who is it, Kyle? Is, it, uh, is his first name Bob? His first name's Bob. What's Bob, his name? Bob Welsh. Bob Welsh was not inducted with Fleetwood Mac.
1: You know, the Fleetwood Mac story is so messy. By the way, I did see that group at the Whiskey when Bob Welsh was in, mm-hmm. and...
0: Um, How was it? Be honest.
1: And I like the single that he, you know, the soul... Was it was Sentimental... Uh, lady? Sentimental Lady. Yeah, I, li- I, th- I like that a lot. But anyway, what I wanted to, I want to loop back to okay. the Spencer Davis group because you brought up Fleetwood Mac. I did. And, of course, um, Christine McVie... Christine Perfect. Who was not in the Spencer Davis mm-hmm. group, but... Played with Spencer before that. They had a duo. Well, um,
0: what did they? It was. I, I
1: think that was his girlfriend in uh, you know in Birmingham when he went to the University of Birmingham. Cool.
0: That's um. So, so why wouldn't the Bob Welsh be inducted with Fleetwood Mac when he was there for? Well, you know, he was there for like the five albums that kept the band going before. Well origin, origin, and, uh, original, originally
1: originally they, they were really stickler about oh, only the original only the original lineup or the original hit lineup. Right, right. And origin, and then they wouldn't like let lesser people in. So and then they kind of being a little bit uh lax about it, but I think you know, the difficulty is subjectively well who are the more important right. lineups or who are the more important, you know, contributors or uh, you, I, I mean in the same way that, you know, you owe, Sure it was Roy Wood's idea to start the Electric Light Orchestra but he wasn't a member when they were successful. Right. So do you keep him in? Do you not keep him? You know it's sort of anyway it's just a uh, a lot of it is uh you know uh, whatever they want to do is fine with me cuz cuz the other the other elements are depending on who comes in mm-hmm. maybe the voting from year to year is affected by well we have to have a telecast every year and we have to have certain artists that are going to appeal to people so that they're going to watch it, you know, maybe that enters into it. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that, um, I don't really care to know, but I'm just saying that, you know, that the average person, you know, wouldn't necessarily know or understand.
0: Yeah. I said, when I saw yes was getting in this year, I was like, Oh boy, how are they, how are they going to do this? Who's going to be getting in? Who's not going to be getting in? But I looked at that list and I think they, I think they made the right, uh, The right choices.
1: I saw Yes play when you asked me earlier about going to shows. Mm -hmm. I saw them play um, last year downtown, and um, the only original guy is uh, Steve Howe on guitar. So usually I stay away from those those things, Mm -hmm. but they were really good. They were like as you know, I mean, the musicianship was was of a high level, and they played really well and in a sense because they played it so well you know it didn't really matter that you know the other guys original guys weren't there
0: i didn't i don't i've seen them too the 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 lineup that's on tour right now that singer's a little weird to me cuz he seems like he's doing like a 70s impression yes. of a john anderson He's well, only, He, he kind of yeah. has a. He kind of has a, a, a. Who's the magician? Doug was it? Doug, Doug Henning? Henning. Yeah. Kind of has a Doug Henning feel to him. And I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't feeling him. But they, they do sound great. They uh, and they do have. Um, they do have some guys that have been there for a long time.
1: Right. Well, I, I agree with you. I would have preferred that he toned it down. <laughs> toned that
0: down. Like I think he had bell bottoms on. I think he had like a. It's like a 70s shirt, and he's talking like this. And this next song is roundabout. It was just like, it was very, uh, very strange to me. But, um, but yeah, I agree with you. It's hard to go see these, uh, these bands when there's like one member and
1: it's difficult. So in the Mark Boland chapter, so I, go, I dip into the seventies, <laughs> an hour of Mark Boland, who is, I think to this day, still the most charismatic mm-hmm. person I spent time with, but he talks about these great groups in the underground of which his original group Tyrannosaurus Rex was one. He mentions um, Fairport Convention. Um, and he mentions the Purple Gang, and he mentions this group called Tomorrow, which Steve Howe was the guitar player for.
0: So that and that's where, because Steve Howe's not an original member of Yes. He's not on the first two albums, actually. Steve Howe.
1: Uh, Peter Banks, wasn't that Peter Banks yeah. on guitar? Yeah, and in fact. That, so, they're
0: not even, so there was no original okay, members right. in the version okay. we saw.
1: That original group, of um, that evolved into a group called Flash. And I saw Flash at the Whiskey. They were on Capitol Records, and they were really good. It was kind of like if you figured the yes sound, but rocked up.
0: And, and when the songs are shorter.
1: Yeah, yeah, but it was more of a rock. Mm-hmm. Thing, but uh, So... so um, if you like Yes, you've seen them, so you might. Yeah, I, I do suggest like suggest the first Flash album on uh, Capitol Records. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. How many
0: concerts do you think you've seen in your lifetime?
1: Um, well, that's a good question. Um, I think more specifically, it's kind of like how many name or mostly name artists, because when I was in the early days of Rhino, when I thought that, it would be a good thing to sign new artists. I would be going to the clubs a lot. Um, I don't know if you want to, you know, count those or not, but uh, let's count
0: name. Yeah. Let's just count name.
1: Um, I don't know. 500. That's done.
0: Were you at, were you at, um, were you at Rhino, Rhino for the, uh, for the knack reissues?
1: Well, that was my thing. Yeah. I brought that in. Yeah. So, so, so the idea was, um, well, originally, um, I mean, I go back with them. Um, um, I mentioned in the first uh, the Capitol Records promotional biography of uh, having turned Mike Chapman on to them. Mike originally, well, he produced them, but I uh, before they were signed to Capitol, but he never got around to seeing them. And then later on, he ended up uh, producing them. But I mean, I was into the band in the early stages, and then and Mike's uh, Mike's in this book, the whole chapter on yeah. them. He also produced uh, Blondie mm-hmm. and had the success with them and just was a great producer.
0: And The Sweet, you talk about The Sweet in here and yes. his relationship with writing songs for them.
1: Right. Uh, but anyway, getting back to the next show. Sure. So, um, so in addition to doing the uh, uh, reissuing a best of, um, um, when they decided they wanted to do a reunion, um, I worked with them on the songs and we put out an album called Zoom,
0: it's their best album.
1: Yes, I agree. They did. You know, it is their best album. They did such a great job on it, and it was so disheartening because radio didn't want to play it. Unbelievable. And for me, it's a matter of if it's a good record, play it. If it's not a good record, don't play it. And they just sort of didn't want to be bothered or didn't want to be, you know, respect the music or give it a chance. And um, yeah, it's a definite. I mean, on one hand. I'm happy that we did it because it exists, and I think it's the best original um, artist album Rhino ever put out. But on the other hand, um, you know, not only was it disappointing for us, but they were so hopeful in doing it, and and uh, Doug especially had just a great attitude and was really supportive of it, and it was, you know, just so dispiriting that uh, ultimately you know, sales were minimal.
0: Yeah, I saw, I had never seen the Knack until I moved out here, and then I, I was lucky enough to see them six or seven times out here. And what a phenomenal live band. I mean, yes. those guys are, each one of them is amazing on their instrument. I mean, I mean, I don't think Burton gets enough credit for his guitar work. He is just phenomenal.
1: Right, so what I wanted to do was, um, you know, a few years before Doug uh, passed away, yeah. Um, I wanted to do a movie because I thought um, a lot of times when you are trying to market a movie, you don't know what it is or it takes some explanation. And I just thought titling it My Sharona, a true rock and roll romance, people either know what it is or they don't know what it is. And I work with uh, Doug on it and coming up with a story. And it's a story that was largely untold because, as you might recall, they originally didn't do interviews when they were successful yeah so
0: um, it might have been a bad uh, yes i think so yeah
1: so um and also as you know really great rock music you're sitting in a theater you hear it loud on the speakers i mean wow it's just it's a great experience so um anyway so in the rhino record story i have a chapter on the knack and i got the whole story there and um you know i'm happy that i was able to you know at least you know if not do a movie at least you know get it out there for people who want to you know, understand more about the band and the story.
0: And also the, uh, the best of the, you guys r- released prior to zoom called proof. Right. Uh, what, I don't know whose idea it was for them to record that thing you do, but that is just, it's, that's
1: phenomenal. It's uh, just so cool. And I think that was my idea. I had them, I figured, <laughs> no, no, I thought I said, look, you know, I'm glad it was your idea. I said, look, you know, we need some new, new tracks, you know, for people who like have all the other stuff right. to try to. And um, so I, uh, you know, gave him a number of them, and uh, yeah. So well, they pick, uh,
0: you guys pick great ones, and uh, again, Zoom is an album that I listen to I constantly. I mean, I tell people about Zoom all the time.
1: Okay, so as we're talking, and as you know, on occasion when I might like read, I mentioned like a Mojo magazine mm-hmm. or uh, Shindig or Ugly Things or some of these magazines, yes, or when people read one of my books, the idea is you read something like the Knack and and the Zoom album, and even if you um, are familiar with it, you might say, hey, I haven't played that in a long time. You know, so one of the, I think one of the things that that I experience and which I hope people experience in the book, is that you are moved to either track down something you haven't heard before, or it reminds you that, hey, I love this album. I haven't played it in a year. Let me dig that one out. Do you like,
0: because I like uh, I like listening to an album. I like to listen to an album top to bottom. It's, I just, that's what I like to do. I like yeah. the album listening experience. Yeah. And that's how you like to listen to music too.
1: Well, for the albums, yes, I mean, definitely.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm actually, uh, people who follow me on Twitter, follow this podcast on Twitter, I'm listening to an album a day uh, for the entire year, which isn't, isn't a hard thing to do anyway because i drive my kids to school and back i've listened to an album so it's a lot of fun but I'm, I'm listening to a lot of things that i haven't listened to in a while like today i listened to um dire straits making movies which is a great album do you have a favorite album of all
1: time could you uh, pick one well i would say top five ish uh, odyssey and oracle would be up there mm-hmm. um love forever changes okay um, that's a great one. I think my, I mean, I, I, I love the Beatles. I love a lot of their albums, but I think, um, revolver probably nudges out Sergeant Pepper. Um, we just did
0: know. last week's episode. Uh, at the time of this record, we did track by track. We did rubber soul and revolver.
1: Yeah. Good. Great All albums. Right. But the other thing is, you know, listening to music, you know, could be really good therapy because you know, you feel better and, or sometimes, you know, if, if you're down and out or you're not feeling well or whatever it is, you put on some music and you feel better. So
0: I just like that you can listen to music no matter what you're doing, driving, doing the dishes, you know, doing yard work. I mean, you can listen, you you can't watch a movie and mow the grass. You can't, you know what I mean? So I, I love, I love, uh,
1: right, right. That's true. But I also think that if you do nothing else and listen to music, you could focus on it much more. I mean,
0: just put the headphones on and lie well, down on
1: the couch. Well, well let, let me give you an example. So, uh, in my British Invasion, there's one of the chapters on. Now, this is a
0: book that's coming out soon, correct?
1: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> All right. So, it's. I on, love how
0: you're bringing it back.
1: Well, no, because I'm making a point. Okay. So, <laughs> on. Um, so John Leiden did uh, his autobiography called Rotten. Mm-hmm. Obviously, used to be called or referred to as Johnny Rotten. Most people probably know him that way. And um, I was surprised that nobody had approached him about optioning his book, and I was friends with his manager at the time. And so he tried to make the movie, and it didn't really happen, and that's a lot of what the chapter's about. But in preparation for writing the chapter, I thought, oh, you know, I haven't listened to... um, you know never mind the bollocks were the sex pistols and which is an album i've always loved and it just sounds great and on one of the tracks which is bodies i noticed this kind of ghostly effect behind it like this echoey ghostly effect and that's something that um i'm not going to say i didn't i never realized before but just when my attention was fully riveted on it you know i was like really impressed uh, chris thomas produced that great producer right. I love his Proco stuff Harem and
0: pretenders right. and pete towns and solo stuff exactly yeah, I love them
1: so that's an example of something i don't think i would have noticed if say i was mowing the lawn
0: and were you listening to it with headphones or was it just no. on at the house
1: well i have a good uh, system at the house i would imagine uh, that you and, probably and, 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 when, and when nobody's around i can crank it are you a, are you a vinyl guy well i mean both but yeah vinyl i just think vinyl is warmer especially on the uh, the vocals
0: what do you think about, uh, I know we're getting, we're still going to talk about the book, my British invasion. I'm holding it up as if there's a, uh, a camera on me. I'm holding it to camera one. Uh, what do you think about when they re-release albums now? Like for example, the example I always use is, uh, Peter Gabriel's so it, they spread it now across two albums cause it's 180 gram vinyl. So then you put side one on and you get two tracks and then you got to flip it kind of ruins the album listening experience a little bit in my opinion.
1: Well, you know what they're doing, which is similar to that, is when you think about an album on 45s, have you seen those? No, I have not seen this. You know, because of the superior mastering and the speed, the Mm -hmm. rotation, the speed. And that's kind of taking your example, I think, a bit further. But, you know, I just think, you know, when you listen to an album, you listen to one side and you flip it over. And what's interesting is that, ideally, back in the old days, you would program for that. And then... um, In the CD era, ideally, your criteria is different. You didn't have to think about, um, you know, what track am I going to bury at the end of side one or (laughs) what's going to lead off side two. It's really a different way of uh, putting it together.
0: That's true, yeah.
1: yeah. I just,
0: uh, I embrace CD technology, like, immediately. It's just the convenience of playing it in your house and taking that to the car, and I love it uh Manfred Mann I'm not talking about Manfred Mann's Earth band we're talking about oh you know what we didn't play a holly song i got us off track let's listen to this hollies this is the first one on your playlist this is uh, i'm alive A lot of these songs for tonight's episode on the pirate radio soundtrack,
1: which is oh, a, which is a, it's a, yeah, it's a great soundtrack. Did you see that movie? Not only did I see it, but I have a whole chapter about the real story um, <laughs> in uh, <clears throat> my British Invasion. So, wait, This, so I, right, no, this wait right here. So, what happened was um, the most popular DJ in Europe throughout mm. the seventies who got his start. On one of the pirate radio ships was Emperor Roscoe. And I'm gonna do a, m- a movie based on him. And I interviewed him, and um, obviously, uh, Rhino Films uh, um, could only do so much. We're a very small company. Um, and Richard Curtis, who uh, did uh, pirate radio, um, he had done, uh, you know, had a number of hits uh, as a uh, screenwriter. So they gave him a shot with this. And um, in reading about it before the movie came out, it was like he used to listen to pirate radio on his transistor radio underneath his pillow, and he kind of concocted this comedy thing, and then later on added a few factual things. And I just thought, um, I didn't really like it. I thought it for a number of reasons. But the original story was... Um, so rich, including a murder mystery. And he just kind of like, here's the original story. He just like, he didn't use it. And I also think because the movie was a big flop and lost lots of money, nobody else is going to do a pirate radio movie. So because I figured nobody else is going to present the story, I thought, okay, at least let me add a chapter on that. Um, so that people have an understanding of really what it was all about, rather than this movie, which was uh, you know just kind of this episodic comedy.
0: Yeah, I agree with you on that. I uh, I didn't like the movie that much either, but the soundtrack is uh, is worth picking up because every track on that, I think almost every track on it is is on one of your playlists in this uh, in my British invasion.
1: Um, so getting back to the Hollies, "I'm Alive" is a great record. The first time I heard it. Big hit in England, not a hit in America. No, But it's a great record. You've got the soaring harmonies. You've got that Bobby Elliott on the drums. You could hear he's just a great drummer. And, uh, you know, the rhythm guitar is a little bit in the background, but it has a tremolo on it. And, um, you know, when you actually listen to how it put together, it it was just... uh, uh, musically just a really good I mean a, a good record but musically the the components
0: and again this is another thing I did v- with your book is I went down the list of the Holly songs and I'm alive I had never heard that song before so I listened to it and it's fantastic so that's the one that uh, we're playing
1: tonight good and um, do you play an instrument um, I used to play the guitar very poorly so when I so when I had a, a a band and was writing songs, I mean other people were better musicians, so you know they I let them do it. But
0: but you still have one sitting at the house in case you want to pick yeah, it up you and. You know fool I did around.
1: I did pick it up recently. It's uh, the acoustic, and I thought you know what these strings sound really bad. I think <laughs> I think they were the strings originally from the '60s. No, no, not that bad. But I did think about you know I really need to like put on new strings so I could feel more like playing again.
0: And, uh, let's see, you're you're ahead of me right there. You can put the strings on yourself.
1: I have done that in the past. Uh,
0: Manfred Mann. I only knew of Manfred Mann from, uh, from their Bruce Springsteen covers in the seventies. I didn't really know that there was a, well, that was Manfred Mann's earth band, but I didn't really know, uh, too much about Manfred Mann, British invasion style. What can you tell us about Manfred Mann?
1: Um... Well, first of all, one of the points that I make is when you think about all these really great bands that came out of this period, whether it's the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or the Yardbirds or the Who, and the question that I pose is, you know, who do you think was the best musically? And my answer is Manfred Mann. And um, the even though they only had two U.S. hits, they were big in England, and... Um, but just really great musicians. They were originally kind of like a like jazz cats masquerading as rock and rollers, but in addition to the musicianship, in addition to Paul Jones being maybe the best singer uh, from uh, that period, um, they had a really knack for arrangements. Not everybody who was in a rock and roll band was good at arranging, and that's one of the things that they had on... Probably they arranged you know within the band itself, and in fact um uh the uh, original guitar player um mike vickers, he was always into classical music even though he was doing this rock and roll and at a certain point, even though they were having hits, he left and he uh um arranged for the beatles he programmed the um um the uh, when when the Beatles did the Our World telecast, which a lot of people know was like the first part of the first live worldwide telecast, he did the orchestration for All You Need Is Love. Oh, that's and, cool! You know, led the band and he programmed uh, the Moog and um, the Abbey Road album. He programmed that for that, programmed that for them. So he was really—I mean, he wasn't the only guy, but just talking about you know how sophisticated just one of the guys was. Do you ever imagine
0: be like being in London around, if you could go back in time and just go there around this time when all this music was being made and all these bands. Like I, am, I, I think about that a lot. I like fantasize about you know, seeing the kinks in a club and all that kinds of stuff. I mean, because just so much great music came out of that period.
1: Yeah, well, obviously I've felt the same way, but um, uh, when I graduated from UCLA um, and didn't have a job, Um, I went to London naively thinking that, oh, you know, I'll live here for a little while and not realizing how expensive it was. So this was in uh, September 1972. So even though I knew that I was well past that peak period that you were talking about of seeing the kinks in the clubs, um, I think I had a really great experience in... um, experiencing, you know, what was actually there and who was playing and who I could see and seeing Colin Blundstone, the lead singer of the zombies at his third solo gig ever, and, wow. you know, things like that. So, um, it wasn't like the sixties, but it was as close as I could get to it.
0: And how long uh, in 1972, how long did you stay in London? I
1: think I was there three weeks.
0: Three weeks. The money held out for three weeks and it was time to come home.
1: Well, so I do have a chapter in the book called London 1972. So you could, you could see how I scrimped. (laughs) Like, where did you stay? You didn't, I mean. Okay. Here's the story. For example, like nowadays you
0: could probably connect with someone on the internet and then meet them and stay at their place. You know what I mean? All that. Okay. There was this
1: book, you know, London on $6 a day. Uh, from uh, uh, Fromer book. It was like really, it was like f- famous. It a famous book, Popular yeah. travel guides. So, and you bought so one. So they of those. said, yeah, so they said, okay, well, you know, go to this area. So I went to, the, you know, there's a lot of bed and breakfast places. And okay. You can do that, like two pounds. So I go walking around and it's hot and I'm, you know, I'm lugging luggage and, you know, no <laughs> vacancy. Uh oh, what do I do now? I don't know. So I, for a couple of nights, I sprang for a, a a cheapo hotel for three pounds a night. But I thought, you know what? This is over my budget. So I thought, okay, well, Mick Jagger, he went to the London School of Economics, didn't he? I'm going to go there. You know, schools, universities, they have dormitories, right? So I went over there, and I went to like whatever (laughs) office, and they gave me a referral. And I didn't realize it, but again, because of the, the expense of housing and the shortage of housing. So I ended up in these dormitory bungalows but you ordinarily you would think that a dormitory would be on campus or close to campus right. and these were like you know miles away <laughs> but i was so relieved to get something for you know under two pounds a night that you know i just i you know not being um you know not really understanding the city not knowing kind of where i was other than i wasn't you know in the west end you know and actually it uh, it It worked out financially, and there were a couple actually nice little benefits Mm -hmm. at the end that I just thought, oh, if I wasn't in this area, I wouldn't have experienced this or that. So it worked out nicely as much as, uh, you know, it was uh, probably not the best location.
0: And you were by yourself?
1: Originally, and then one of my friends who was going to the University of Birmingham for his uh, junior year, uh, he joined me for a few days, and it was nice because we could go to um, clubs and things together.
0: I love stories like this. It's it's amazing that you that you were. I guess how old were you at this point? Twenty two. Twenty
1: two. Yeah, I just graduated yeah, at, UCLA yeah,
0: at twenty two. I would have never like thought to get on a plane and go to uh, go to um, London.
1: Well, it was interesting. I mean, again, I was doing a lot of rock writing and yeah. um, got in touch with the record companies, and you know that provided a lot of. Uh, um, um, you know, what I did with my activities. But the point is that um, very rarely would they see a journalist coming over from America. I mean, on rare occasions, you know, record companies might fly, you know, a few over for some sort of opening, which was infrequent. But actually, somebody like myself, who paid his own way... Perfect. So, um, yeah, so so was,
0: that that got you in a lot of doors and into shows and stuff.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I I mean, uh, I was established enough so that the U.S. based labels contacted the English companies, so they knew I was coming.
0: You really knew what you wanted to do at an early age, I think, which is fantastic.
1: Yes, I mean, twenty-two is y- y- young. Yeah, well, I think also because of the growing up in the '60s and um, a lot of the non-musical aspects of um the culture like um the social aspect or maybe you know the political aspect as far as uh, youth expressing itself and um, mm-hmm. it was uh um you know the freedoms i mean there was a lot of things going on that tied in with the music um and i um my life then as well as now was affected by that
0: and you you look fantastic you look super young oh
1: well, thank you thank you that's Glad a compliment
0: Thank you. I know your wife's here. I'm not trying to get you in, uh, you know,
1: I'm not trying to. Well, I hope it helps later.
0: <laughs> man for Man, you picked Duwad Diddy Diddy, which I, I always think of as, I always think of the movie Stripes, so it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't think of that as like a, what do I want to say? Like a serious
1: song. Okay. Before we play this, I'll give you the background. Okay. So, um, to do Run Run was a big hit. Yep. So the main writers, um, Jeff Berry and Ellie Greenwich, they decided, hey, that was a number one record. Let's write the follow-up. Let's come up with some, uh, like a nonsense symbol, a uh, slogan or something. Okay. So da do run run" is not a word. And do-wa-diddy-diddy isn't a word. And Phil Spector, of course, produced the Ronettes, and he didn't like do wah diddy So um, another girl group, the Exciters, did it. Wasn't a hit, but it kind of you know, uh, lopped along. And um, Paul Jones was a fan of girl groups, including the Exciters, and he heard the record and brought it to the group. Uh, Paul Jones, being the lead singer of Man for Man, we mentioned earlier. And um, so when you play this, I want people to hear just how dynamic this record is. I mean, it's you know, nowhere compares to you know, the girl group record, the Exciters did. Okay, let's hear it.
0: There she was, just walking down the street singing. (laughs) Papping her fingers and shuffling her feet singing. (laughs) She looked looked good. She looked fine. looked fine. She looked good. She looked fine, and I nearly lost my mind before I knew it. She was walking next to me, singing. I love the shaker, the you constant know, what, shaker, maracas, maracas. So you know, so I call it a shaker. I'm not. I don't know instruments like you do, Harold.
1: So, um, <laughs> so like those little rolls on the drums, yes, like those timpani drums, mm-hmm. and how the song starts and stops. I mean. You know that was really atypical for a, a rock and roll record.
0: And again, who uh, the writers of that were?
1: Uh, Jeff Berry and Ellie Greenwich. They had a lot of a lot of hits.
0: And then uh, the Mighty Quinn that was written by uh, Bob Dylan.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Manfred um, Mann Man had done a few of his songs, and because of that, they got uh, um, access they, for the um, what later became the Basement Tapes. I mean, at the time, that's not what they were referred to. Right. And they listened to him, this, and they picked out this track.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And then uh, you talk about Paul Jones in here, too. Uh, you have a, a song or two solo songs of his, and I have one of those queued up. So since we're talking about Manfred, Man Mann, this is Paul Jones. This is I've Been a Bad, Bad Boy. The next band I want you to uh, tell us a little bit about is uh, The Creation. Yes. This band, uh, I think the first time I heard of them, I think maybe there was a song in a, maybe a Wes Anderson movie or something, a couple, uh, um, know, a few years um, back, yes, Rushmore. I, Rushmore. Yeah. That's yeah, that's many years back then. But I had never heard, I didn't, had never heard of this band before in my
1: life. Okay, so um, uh, they were originally produced by Shel Talmy,
0: who okay. produced the first Kinks albums right and, and the first who album
1: right and then the who even though he did a great job for the who they fired him and by the way the my generation album which is the album that he did if you listen to it i think it's the best sounding who record um, but anyway um, so i think he wanted to get back and go i can you know i can do like the who even make who records yeah so he got this group called the creation who really weren't successful although they were on the continent like they were big in germany for instance and um, their thing, years later, um, Jimmy Page used to impress people when Led Zeppelin would play. He would play his guitar with a violin bow. Well, he got that idea from the creation.
0: I think they got a lot of ideas from a lot of people, well, this Led Zeppelin. That's true,
1: that's true. <laughs> um, but, but also one of the things, the creation had a song called Painter Man. And on stage, they would do like a pop art. I mean, you know, pop art was really big at the time. Yeah. So they would do a painting on stage during the song, and then at the end of the song, they would light it on fire.
0: So I mean, they, <laughs> they you know, wouldn't they, give it to someone in the audience. They would they would burn the art.
1: Right. So they were really good <laughs> musically. They had some really good songs. Uh-huh. Um, really creative, and kind of one of the lineups towards the end, the uh, guitar player was uh, Ronnie Wood,
0: from the Faces, and from the Rolling Stones. That's right. I actually have the song Painter Man queued up. Let's hear it, Kyle. Okay. Went to college, studied it on to be an artist, make a star. this band i like this a lot
1: okay so as that faded out that on the that's the bow on the the guitar um yeah so um so what i did in my book is i was focusing on for the most part the artists and the records that people in the u.s would be familiar with so even though i mentioned the creation i really don't talk about them because you know like people don't know who they are right
0: but they should know who they are
1: well uh, i would like to hope so but uh no i mean they made some great records yeah. well that's
0: what, the, yeah. that's what i think that's what i think for me that's was my big takeaway from your book is finding music uh by groups i had heard of but i hadn't heard these songs or finding a band like the creation yes uh now the yardbirds how many how many lineups different lineups did the Yardbirds have? There's actually a lineup on tour right now, but I don't know who's in it.
1: Um, okay, so originally, before they recorded, um, of the five members, the guitar player was Anthony Top Topham, but when they decided to go professional, he was only fifteen. And his parents wouldn't let him, and they said, "You got to stay in school." <laughs> so that's when they got Eric Clapton in, and they knew Eric a couple of them from art school or art college.
0: I always hear about people at art college. What yeah. was art college in in the UK?
1: Well, I I talk about that a, a little bit, meaning like so many members, um, Pete Townsend, and Ray Davis. I think a mm. lot of a lot of it is. I love that
0: you said Ray Davis.
1: Yeah. Well. He's a sir now. I got to, you know. You but you're not, you
0: don't go with that Davies.
1: Well, if people don't know who he is, sometimes I do because that it confuses them. So um, you know, I think a lot of it is for um, uh, people who were, you know, malcontents or a bit wayward or didn't perform as well as they should have. Academically, they kind of shuffled them off to <laughs> art school. It's cool. Um, I think kind of that's, Ron Wood went to art school. I mean, so many of them sounds
0: better than joining the military.
1: Um, yes. Yeah. So, um, all right. So then the lineup with Eric Clapton and, um, I think that lasted about a year and a half. And then his big thing is when they recorded "For Your love and they really were confident that it was going to, could be the hit that, that they, uh, were, were hoping for. Eric being the blues purist it was like well I don't want to you know do any of that pop stuff so he left and they asked Jimmy Page to join but he was making too much money as a session man <laughs> So then he recommended Jeff Beck So then that Jeff Beck joining would have been the third lineup, and then at a certain point um, the Bass player Paul Samuel Smith who was kind of the producer the musical director. Yes he decided I've had enough of this rock band stuff I want to produce. So he left.
0: And he produced Carly Simon and a bunch of people.
1: Um I, yes, um I think he did 5 or 6 albums with Cat Stevens. Yes. I think he had like 4 or 5 platinum albums and wow. one gold album, Jethro Tull. Excellent producer. Cool. Um okay, so when then he left, then Jimmy Page was getting a little bit antsy, like, oh, you know, I'm tired of doing the session stuff. I want to be in a rock and roll group. So um, so that was the next lineup with him basically replacing Paul Samuel Smith on bass. And then at a certain point, Jeff Beck became too ornery and difficult and he, <laughs> uh, he got kicked out. I think he's still ornery and difficult, Jeff yeah, Beck. I think so. So then um, Chris Drea played the bass and Jimmy Page reverted to guitar. So that's what four lineups.
0: I think a lot of people, when they when they hear the... I think a lot of people think that Clapton and Beck and Page were all in the Yardbirds together. That's why I wanted you to give us uh, the history of the lineups.
1: Well, what's uh, sort of a little bit unfortunate is that the Beck and Page lineup, when they were in together, they only really did one single, and then they did... Um, the song stroll on and the blow up movie. So that's all they recorded together. And it would have been nice to have heard so much more. Yeah,
0: definitely. I have, uh, I have for your love, obviously. So let's hear, uh, let's hear for your love. Uh, do you remember seeing the, the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And was that, uh, well, tell me what that was like. Well, first of all, it was more of a curiosity like, mm-hmm. who are these guys? But um, I was not that impressed because on t- the sound on TV was um, not muffled, but, you know, it, it wasn't dynamic like the records. Yes so hearing it on the radio you know that was a whole different thing but uh and even today if you you know because it's been on um dvd you could hear that it doesn't sound as bright because it was it was mixed for tv you know those small speakers Speakers, yeah so um yeah i yeah uh, people
0: didn't have surround sound systems on their tv way back then
1: but, but anyway what's interesting is um Probably two, three weeks ago, I saw A Hard Day's Night, and I probably hadn't seen it in eight to ten years. And in some ways, I liked it or appreciated it better than I had previously. It's just because it not only does it capture things so well, but it leaves you, um, there's a real joy about it. You know, you, you, mean, you know, they're the Beatles, and you're watching them. But as a Beatle fan, you know, you're part of it. It's just exuberant. It's just, it, you know, I don't know when the last time you've seen it or, or not, but um, next time you just like, when you think about the experience, like, wow, you know, where else can you get that feeling from? But, you know, it was also innocent, and yeah. it was funny. The dialogue was good, and, you know, they, they delivered it really well, and I don't know. Anyway, it was just it was great.
0: Hard Day's Night's one of my favorite Beatles albums. I think that's a fantastic album, top to bottom.
1: Okay, I'm going to give you like a little, uh, a little bit here. Okay. Okay. So when they cleaned it up and remastered it, mm-hmm. there's a scene in the dressing room where they have like you know they get they're, you know they're taking clothes off the, the wooden hangers, and the wooden hanger kind of shifts a little bit, and you can read a little bit of it now that maybe you couldn't originally. Okay. And you can see a P, and you can see New York, and you can see kind of a little bit. Um, turns out that mere weeks before filming. They did the Ed Sullivan show. They stayed at the Plaza Hotel. They took the hangers from the (laughs) Plaza Hotel. That's, you know, you could see the P part of the plaza. They stole things. Yeah. I just thought, oh, that's kind of fun. Well, I guess it's
0: better than throwing the TV out the window. Yes. Stealing the hangers. They were were nice lads.
1: Yes, anyway. Uh,
0: Let's hear, I have uh, just a couple more songs. Again, uh, the book is coming out. On April 11th. I can't wait. Uh, You got to get this book and we will have, I talked to Andrew Hungate at rare bird lit and he's going to send me some of these when they come out and then I'll track you down and, uh, and you'll sign some of these and we'll give them away to the listeners. That'd be great. Yeah, this is, I I really, really, really like this book. I have one more question about uh, your previous book and the rhino, rhino record story. I mean, that seems like that would make an amazing movie has have, have, has anyone wanted to make your life story uh into a movie
1: well it's interesting um years ago um hollywood records was interested kind of mildly not hollywood records um uh, touchstone well the, the disney yes, film sure, touchstone. touchstone and um But I didn't think the story was that interesting, so I made up all kind of funny stuff, which I thought was pretty good and creative, but uh, they didn't want to proceed with the project.
0: Who would you cast as yourself?
1: Oh, I, you know, I can't even think about that because it's, uh, you you know, I'm going to tell you why, because the development process is so long whereby ideas and scripts are written and things... That you know, if you were thinking of okay, let's get like a young guy in his twenties. Well, you know, ten years later, it's he's like he's not know, a young guy in his twenties. It's like you know, somebody else. I, I, I give you like a um, a another example of that, not sort of that age group, but at one point, um, um, Mike Myers, you know, Austin Powers. Sure, Mike Myers wanted to play Keith Moon in the Keith Moon story. Mm-hmm. I remember reading this. Okay, I think this was probably about late 90s maybe 2000 and you know they they could never get a script to to go ahead with it but you have to think okay he was probably he would have been great but he was you know on the old side he might have been older than keith was when he died back then exactly exactly so i'm just saying is that so it's kind of like at a certain point it's like well mike myers you know even though you could do a great job you're not going to be able to pull it off
0: and we've and that keith moon movie has never has they've never made a keith moon movie
1: um, no, no, they haven't, but, uh, it's, uh, there's a really good book, uh, for anybody's interested called Dear Boy.
0: And that's about Keith Moon?
1: Yeah. Tony Fletcher. Yeah. Did you read Pete Townsend's autobiography? Uh, yes.
0: I read, I read these two biographies back to back. I read Pete Townsend's and then I read Rod Stewart's. Yes. Yeah. There's a world of difference <laughs> between those two guys. Oh, of course. Pete Townsend. It sounds like he never had any fun in his life, and Rod Stewart's whole book is fun, fun, fun the whole way through.
1: It's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, yeah.
0: but um, uh, I want to read. Uh, I want to read a couple of. Uh, I want to read some of the playlists. Just some of the lists in the back of this book. We got Dave Clark Five, Herman's Hermits, The Hollies, The Kinks, Yardbirds, Man for Man. A couple Jeff Beck tunes, Spencer Davis Group. Then you have uh, you have a glam rock, which is fantastic. That was probably happening in 72 when you, were, when you were visiting London. Was there some glam rock um, starting to happen then?
1: Yeah, I mean, I like a lot of those records. Obviously, I have the playlist there. Yeah. I mean, a few records happened here, but for the most part, it didn't happen in the U.S. And there's all these great records. And um, yeah, I was able to uh, uh, experience that uh, uh, you know, over in London, yeah.
0: And then you have a, you have a pirate radio obscurities is the last list. And these are the, yeah, this, this is uh this is the list I took the creation off of. And yeah, these, uh, these songs are amazing. And these are bands that you've probably never heard of unless you uh, have as much knowledge as uh, Harold does, but the action, the sorrows, finders, keepers, the renegades, the Ivy league. I mean, these are, this is just, this is a, you know, this is like a, this is the Bible, folks. This is the Bible for your British Invasion, not Thank mine, you. yours. Thank you. Um, let's hear because uh, you had a kink. I love the Kinks. The Kinks are my favorite British Invasion band because there's uh, there's just so prolific, so much great music. I love those early albums. Uh, the RCA uh, era is not the era that I like so much because they're they're really. A lot of experimental stuff a lot of concept stuff that i'm not that into but still there's great stuff in those albums but um but i picked a song off your playlist that i haven't heard in a long time uh, because everyone knows all the kinks hits so i picked a song called uh big black smoke <laughs> Child, in the Big school, in the Big I love Ray because he really embraces being British. Like he'll sing about having a cup of tea and he'll just sing about, you know, just really simple stuff sometimes. And he's not afraid to sing in the, in the Cockney accent if he wants to. And I'm just, uh, kinks are just fantastic. I can't wait till the new, his new solo album comes out and, he always plays shows here in L.A. I always go see Ray Davis.
1: Um, well, I agree with you. I'm a big Kinks fan. Did you see the Storyteller Tour?
0: I did not see the Storyteller okay, that's, Tour.
1: Well, that's, I don't know if it still is, but it's also available on CD. But, I do have the CD. Right, okay. So originally he read from his book X-Ray mm-hmm. and then you know put some music into it. Um, and um, you know that was a, a great show. But um, I saw his West End play um, called Sunny Afternoon at the Harold Pinter Theater about a, a year and a half ago and it was really a lot of fun I mean I don't think I mean it had a nice run much longer uh, I think than they anticipated but it was you know all this great music it was a real fun show but the, but the problem is he had all those hits in England and a lot fewer in the US yes. so I don't think it would I don't think it would make it here cuz cuz people don't know those songs
0: Yeah, that's that really that really sucks about the kinks because those songs, you know, Dead End Street and Set Me Free. I mean, those songs are phenomenal. Like they they should have been hits over here. I don't uh, to me, I think I always think that because I I love the kinks, I always think that they were hits, but they weren't. But um, I actually have the uh, they they put out a a compilation with that, with all the tracks from that musical. And uh, I would love I would love to see that show.
1: Well, I don't know if they ever kind of, you know, filmed it just for reference or not, but
0: yeah, it's not like, uh, the queen, we will rock you where everyone knows those songs worldwide. It's right. a different thing. Uh, well, look, thank you so much for being here, Harold. I want to thank your wife for sitting here and, uh, just being fabulous and listening. Uh, is there anything before I play us out, um, is there anything else you want to tell us that we might not have covered in the book? Cause we don't want to blow the book for people. We don't want people to listen to this podcast and not read the book. That would well, be ridiculous. I, mean, I
1: think we just barely scratched the surface, but you know, the main thing is, you know, the music is the most important thing. And if that book, you know, gives you some insight into the music or some really great stories or tells you how the songs are written and it leads you to listening to the music, right. You know, you know, that's a really great, uh, the goal that I have in mind.
0: So right now you can pre-order the book on Amazon. Uh, it comes out April 11th. Uh, that'll be next week. So please, uh, next week at the time of this record. So please, uh, order a copy. You will not be disappointed. I love the cover. I love, uh, I love everything about this book, Harold. And I'm so glad that we finally got you in here and, uh, we'll promote our show real quick. Uh, follow us on Twitter at rock solid show, Follow me at Pat underscore Francis and follow Kyle at Kyle Dotson funny and uh, read the show notes. They're written by Andrew Rich and the song I picked to play us out. It's not in your book, but the song I picked to play us out is a Beatles song because I think when I think for a lot of people, the Beatles were their first introduction into the British invasion. Would you agree or disagree? No, me too. And uh, so I picked the first song that they ever played on the Ed Sullivan show okay all right so thank you kyle thank you harold and let's hear a little bit of all my loving
1: Pretend